back to Travel Nuggets. Today, we're going to try something a little different. We're going to talk about a concept, a concept that affects all travelers and a concept that most travelers take in and very much enjoy without maybe knowing what it is. So today we're going to have back Rick Antonson, travel writer and traveler. Um, Welcome back to Travel Nuggets, Rick. Thank you for having me back, Christy. So you call yourself an apostle of cathedral thinking. What is cathedral thinking and why is it so important? I think to give a sort of Peter Rabbit condensed version of cathedral thinking, it's it's this. Say in the 1400s, you were an architect and your community leaders came to you and asked you to design a new cathedral for the the, the town or the, the, the city somewhere, say, in Europe. And as you began that task, you would know that you were doing so, but would not live to see your design and that cathedral completed because it could take 60 or 160 years to build the cathedral. So you were beginning something that future generations would benefit from, generations of of people who were not yet born. So cathedral thinking, which can be applied in many different areas today, is really rooted in the the early cathedrals, which had stonemasons putting in place the foundation blocks of something that they knew a great-great-grandchild may be building on top of years hence. Well, I think it's also interesting to think about the fact that people would be appreciating it that that builder or the person with the vision didn't even know, not just their grandchildren, but you and me, when we think about the Cathedral of Notre Dame, or um, you cite several examples, I know you did a TED Talk, but I think it's also interesting to to think about the fact that many of them didn't know the recipient of, of these great works. And And that's true in the building of something that magnificent where they they wouldn't they wouldn't know who the individual beneficiaries would be when the cathedral opened a long time down the road but they would know themselves that they would not finish the task when they died there would be more work to be done and and i I came across a phrase that i think is 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 really important as a result of that And, and and it's this that we should all be involved in unfinished work. And think about what you do in your day-to-day world, what I can do, what anyone listening to this can do. We're kind of, oh, we got to get it done. We got to finish this up. We've got to complete our job. But sometimes what we've got to do is be laying the foundation for someone else, a successor in our position or a colleague who may be much younger to come along and use new tools, new ideas, new technology to build upon what we have put in place, whether it's an early blogging enterprise, whether it's the writing of books, whether it's the designing of a city that has to be able to grow beyond 50,000 people and one day be 150,000 people and maybe with a core plan that allows it to expand to be 500,000 people. It's that thinking that what we do today 
matters for people who aren't even yet born. And so we better do it right. So you make your living off of travel, travel and writing and, um, and other, other things related to the industry. Is that what got you interested in cathedral thinking? How did you come across this concept and why are you so passionate about being an ambassador and an apostle for it, getting the word out about what it is? Well, it's important to, to say that I had nothing, absolutely not a thing to do with creating the concept. And I had heard about it, I'm going to say, 40 years ago. It, it, and it, I just was in the back of my mind. More recently, about eight or 10 years ago, um, my wife Janice was, was working in Edinburgh in Scotland. And we were there on Christmas Eve. And we went to St. Mary's Cathedral, which is a gorgeous building. And it's big, it's high ceilinged. And there must have been another, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 people there for for this. And we just kind of walked in because we were walking by. And gee, it's Christmas Eve. We should go into the cathedral. And so after this service, which was also... um, an event, a, a big community gathering. Jess and I were walking home, stopped for a, a glass of wine, and I mentioned cathedral thinking, and it was a, a new phrase to Janice. And so when I got back at the time, I was CEO and president of, of Tourism Vancouver, and we were involved in launching the bid to bring the Olympics to Vancouver and Whistler, and which eventually happened in 2010. And, and so I I always was giving lots of speeches in January because people wondered about the coming year. And I started at the end of each to just drop a few nuggets about cathedral thinking and explaining the concept in a, a Reader's Digest version. And I always would get like heaps of questions afterwards. So then I formulated a proper presentation and, and just started realizing people are doing cathedral thinking all over the world most often without realizing they're doing it, but they're applying it in all different fields of endeavor. And that was exciting. And so I just got excited. And when someone gets excited, they start talking lots about it. And I had lots of platforms to speak. And so I could help get the word out, uh, hopefully for the good of other people and see other people pick up and, and use the term more actively now too. Well, I want to come back to who's doing it now and how they're doing it. But you had, when we were emailing about um, setting up this interview, uh, well, the the one we previously did over uh, Full Moon over Noah's Ark, yes. you had mentioned that you'd be interested in talking about this concept. So I had done some reading on it and I watched your TED Talk. So it was, it was in my head kind of percolating as I just went out on my last trip um, where I did the Southern Caucasus, so Armenia. Azerbaijan and Georgia. And what I did notice is comparing the three different, and I'd say I did more of a capitals tour, Baku, Yerevan, and Tbilisi. And I found that in Tbilisi and in Azerbaijan, there was a lot of remnants of cathedral thing. I mean, it, I think they're still they're still working on it, but I was very much appreciating the old, old architecture that took enormous amounts of skill and thought and labor 
to construct. So in Azerbaijan, there was in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, uh, some very wealthy, what they called oil barons that that felt passionate about making their city beautiful. And so they brought in architects from all over the world, Paris and, and Poland and, and Austria. And after building their own palaces, built up portions of the city that are still just breathtaking today. There's a little Vienna, little Paris. And then I compared that to Duplessis where they have these beautiful uh, sort of stacked homes with balconies and they, uh, they have these, the balconies have something called Tbilisi carving, which have a Persian influence. And then I compare that to Yerevan, which is very much Soviet. And in driving into it, there was a lot of quick concrete construction that's now sort of dilapidating and falling down and a lot of oil pipelines that are above ground. So there wasn't as much attention to beauty. It was more efficiency. And it, it just got me thinking that the cathedral thinking involves thinking about beauty and that's inconvenient in a way, but the joy that it induces or, or provokes is, is something you can't really quantify. I, I like what you just said about, about thinking about beauty isn't convenient and to expedite construction of places for people to live. It's easiest to do boxes. And you've seen some of that in, in North America, you've seen it in other places, but this, the, the, the Soviets during the, the Stalin times particularly got really good at unsightly architecture that wasn't, it wasn't anything more than its functionality of, of hallways and rooms and, and cooking fuel as, as much as that worked in sanitation. Whereas what you talk about in Azerbaijan, the the aesthetics, this this sense that that other eyes are going to fall on what we're creating. So let's make it beautiful, and many of the people who are going to see this are our children or our grandchildren. So so let's do good for future generations, and that's at the, the core of of cathedral thinking. Is it's about others, and it's about future generations. I think one of the things when you talk about Azerbaijan and Baku, and part of it is, is that they set in place the start of something that was strong enough to guide the future. So that much of what has been constructed by current leadership with current money that is more in government hands, less maybe in the individual hands, it hubbed to it, it stayed with the earlier vision because that earlier vision was so good and so long-term that now what has been built in the way of new buildings looks of a, an architectural family with what was done dozens and dozens and dozens of years ago because it had integrity, it had a beauty that people could say, we better continue this. Those visionaries saw something that was going to happen down the road. We're now down the road. Let's continue it so that generations that are around in 2050 also benefit from the beauty of the early vision, the, the early cathedral thinkers. So I think that was very well put, putting, you know, these areas on track to continue this tradition or directional. Uh, what do you, 
you travel all over the world. Who do you think is doing it right? What cities? Can you can you tell us about some examples where you just you think that that foundation is there and they're perpetuating it? Well, cities cities don't always get it right. I know. I mean, Vancouver is known for its open spaces, and quite often is talked about as an example, as is say. Melbourne and in, in, in Australia, um, and Edinburgh's got a, a character about it that is rooted in history and tries not to let let it become overmarketed and, and a stereotype of its of its history. But it's it's tough for cities because you'll see a, a a London that maybe loses sense of its skyline with a couple of skyscrapers that are are nondescript. And that's always a disappointment. I would say Paris has, has stayed with it, its grid because it was it was circular and it was big and it was at the time one that was going to evolve outward in a, in a, a, a pretty nice fashion. But something that has is, is struck me as a, a traveler and as a, a reader trying to follow sort of movements that have a, a long-term view I would say that Scotland's an example of, of a place that specifically by name has talked about cathedral thinking as a, a, a mandatory mindset when it comes to land conservation. How do you protect land that currently isn't built upon? How do you make sure that, that vast swaths of magical landscape gets protected for the long term? And they talk about cathedral thinking in Scotland as applied to saving, protecting landscapes that will be available to future generations. I came across it in, in Australia where there was not just one or two, but several uses of, of the term cathedral thinking related to water preservation. And when they were talking about water preservation, they were talking about ensuring that the clean water resources enjoyed by people today will be protected, which then gets back to protecting the lands, but those, those rivers or those sources will be available for future generations. Certainly in the United States and in Canada, there's talk about protection of wild rivers. And people often apportion to that the notion of cathedral thinking because the wild rivers, which means the habitat for wildlife, which means that the, the, the recreational activities, that they don't get dammed up by short-term needs, but that they're around for the long-term because protecting wilderness is so important. Societies don't always use wilderness, but, but societies seem to need to know that, that the wildernesses will be around for the long-term. And I'll, I'll close this answer by saying, we're seeing a, a threat now to, to the world biosphere, but we're seeing it in in Brazil, where the, where the current government is is reducing regulations that are aimed at environmental controls. They're encouraging mining and forestry and all manner of commerce to go in and hack down the Brazilian rainforest, which is it's the it's one of the lungs of of the world. So short term thinking for short term enjoyment, short term gain is contradictory to cathedral thinking. Well, and to tie it back to tourism too, the Amazon is such a huge draw yes. for, for people to come to Brazil. And it also got me thinking about um, 
the way of St. James, Santiago de Compostela. In, oh, yes. And that's, that's an interesting fusion of preservation of this natural environment and the cities that connect it. And tourism has built up around it. But it is something that has become, I, I don't know how many people it draws every year. But what's really amazing about it is that the way it looks now is the same way it looked when people started doing it in the ninth century and the way people will do it, hopefully, you know, decades or centuries from now too. Well, and and, you know, the, the, the term sauntering actually comes from, from that area because Ah, the the, the people who were, 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 um, and I can't remember the proper, um, proper phrase for it, but they were sauntiers. They were, they were on their way on a pilgrimage. And so sauntering got extricated from, from that word. And, and of course, sauntering is, is, and the contemplation is what that's all about. But it's an example of, of a place where popularity runs the risk of altering it unless the locals and, and policy decision makers stay true to an earlier long-term vision. I would say the same is true of the Galapagos, where they restrict the number of visitors each year because if they don't, the Galapagos would be overwhelmed and the experience that you or I or one of your listeners would like in the Galapagos in 10 years would not be available because it would have been changed by having too many people. The country of Bhutan restricts the number of foreigners that they will have each year. They charge them dearly for a daily fee. They require they retain a local guide. The fee goes towards education and it goes towards medical services for the the, the Bhutan people. And more and more, you know, those things arise out of earlier times. Earlier leaders in Bhutan said, we don't want our country to be overwhelmed. It's beautiful. We want to protect the beauty. And they had a long-term vision. Whether you call the long-term vision ACA cathedral thinking, or you just call these people visionary, it behooves each succeeding generation to try and keep true to that long-term vision. I love that you brought up the Galapagos because I actually want to make one other point about that that just occurred to me right now. It's not just that the natural landscape and the beauty stays the same. If you go to the Galapagos, you cannot go anywhere without your guide. And I remember being a little irritated by that because I was on a small, small boat. And I was told that was the best way because you see all the, you see more islands and it's more, um, agile to to get through. And I was getting a little claustrophobic. I'm a pretty active person. And when we got to the first island, I just wanted to go for a walk, you know, and but we, we had this guide and he was pointing out all these little things. And then as the trip went on, I realized that the reason that we could get, we could get so close to these animals and their behavior was they weren't afraid at all. They yes. come right up to you. And if, you know, it doesn't take too long for them to learn that we're a threat. And they never learned that because everybody is very carefully watched. You can't feed the animals. You can't touch them. You can't act aggressively. And so they have no reason to fear us. So we would just get a very, very, very close to these little, you know, baby sea lions. And in the water, when we were snorkeling, they'd come really close. And the same with the birds, we could go so close to them and just watch. And they, as 
since no one had ever hurt them, like no human, they didn't have any reason to run from us. They don't see you as a predator. And I, I think one of the things that, that you've hit on is that you are a traveler. You've been able to get many places, but that no matter how many countries or cities you've been to, there are so many more that you've not yet been able yes, to get to. And so if you had not been to the Galapagos yet, and if it was going to be another 10 years before circumstances delivered a trip with you to the Galapagos, in 10 years from now, you want that to be the experience that you could have had 10 years ago. And, and you, many overly popular destinations around the world are suffering from the over-tourism and run the risk of not being the same as you want to see when you eventually get there. And I would use an example in grade four or grade five, long ago, I studied in grade school the, the pyramids. And ever since I've wanted to see the pyramids, I've, I've not yet been to Egypt, but I know the pyramids in my mind from many years ago are not the pyramid seeing experience that I would have today. So, so I think that, that uh, protecting the legacy of historic sites or the early visionaries that say, here's what we've got that's special. Let's have good guests, but let's be good hosts. How do you keep that going without over restriction, but you keep true to the early magic and the early visionaries and the long-term thinkers? Oh, well, you took my next question because um, I was thinking about that with with regard to Stonehenge. Uh, I know when my my parents went there when they for their honeymoon when they first got married, so that was like forty years ago, and they were able to walk up to Stonehenge. And when oh. I went, <laughs> you know, twenty twenty two twenty five years later, we couldn't really get even close to it. And they, you know, when they were asking me, like, how, how was your trip? Did you? And I, I told them how far we were from it because it's so restrict. because people, you know, chipped away at the stone and weren't, you know, respectful visitors. And so now that sort of changed it for the rest of us. Um, you know, it, it has, a, a, you know, in, um, in March, perhaps, perhaps February of, of, of this year, um, I went to Rome for the first, first time. And, and Janice and I walked around and what struck me about, about Rome was you could be on a side street and see a small entrance door to an old church, a, a cathedral. You could walk in and there'd be hardly anyone else there. And you'd see something that obviously wasn't popular, wasn't on all the tourist maps. And, and this didn't happen once or twice. This must have happened to us a dozen times where you're, you're at the very heart of a, a magic, a spiritual place where there might be some people in there as adherence to the, the religion. There might be a couple of other travelers, but it was still possible to have that, that sense of, oh my goodness, I might be the only one today that's not from the neighborhood and look what I'm getting to see. Yet not far away will be the overcrowded over visited sites that you're marshaled through in a controlled fashion because travelers are no longer trusted to behave on average um, as well as they should when it comes to not picking up 
in pieces of the local geography. Huh. That's a that's a good way to put it. Um, so can you tell us who your favorite, you know, maybe one or two cathedral thinkers are, um, either past or present? Well, I would have to say Jim Rogers, who passed away uh, early in in uh, 2019, and he had retired, but but not many years ago, he was the, the chairman, executive chairman of Duke Energy. So here's a company, big American company, with holdings around the world, and and you know quarter their earnings fuels like coal and 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 non-renewable resources and if you google cathedral thinking you'll in one you know cathedralthinking.com comes up maybe first but you'll always see jim rogers name and i I wish i'd met him i wish i'd phoned and, and asked for an opportunity to interview him because when he was head of duke energy making all of its money from taking things out of the ground and, and with the pollutant side effects, his vision was, and he talked about cathedral thinking. He'd be asked to speak at university convocations. And there are many speeches where he talks about cathedral thinking applied to solar energy and to other means of, of renewable resources and wind power. And so 30 years ago, he was at the forefront of investing in wind power and in solar energy when not only were they unpopular, but people were saying, what is this? Like, why are you doing this now? Better to put the money towards something that can give your shareholders a return, you know, in the next quarter. But what Jim Rogers did with Duke Energy, which got the support of shareholders of Duke Energy, was to be a cathedral thinker. And he talked about the need that in 30 years or in 40 years, the world will need renewable resources for energy, like wind power, like solar energy. And what he said, again, this is 30, 40 years ago, he said, if we don't do it now, it won't be ready for our great-grandchildren. We've got to start now. So that the obituaries about Jim Rogers often would say that a, a cathedral thinker has died. And and I, I just I, uh, I I really admire him, a man I I never met, but uh, Jim Rogers was at, was at the forefront, I think, of of um, building what we would say would be a contemporary uh, understanding, appreciation for for the whole notion of cathedral thinking. So I'm an apostle. I, I would say, without him knowing it, he's probably been. Um, my my mentor image in terms of a a current cathedral thinker. Wow. Um, well, I will link to that on um, the Travel Nuggets blog because I do think you have an interview with him up on your website. I no, I said I, I wish I had interviewed him. Oh, I, I write about him. I mention him in every presentation I do. If I've done a hundred presentations on cathedral thinking, I think I've mentioned Jim Rogers every time. No, I. I say with regret that I did not do um, an interview with him because I think I could have. But now that he's he's passed away, I think it's it's fair to say that uh, his fingerprints are all over the notion of cathedral thinking, and he's a, an example in in current times of someone who applied it to uh, in a controversial way. But he applied it because he knew that 
things have to be done for for not only his grandchildren, but the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of, of his colleagues and, and his investors. All right. Well, I want to read, um, as we wrap up this conversation, I want to read a quote that is on your website, um, and it's by you. Uh, it says, it's not what we do that matters, it's what we cause to happen. We should all be involved in unfinished work. So that is a countercultural thought right now. Um, the zeitgeist of today is living your best life. Um, you only live once and, and mindsets like that. So you're kind of saying, no, that, that's wrong. Um, you know, you, you really should be focused on, on unfinished work. How, do, how would you nurture cathedral thoughts and how, do you, how would you recommend that listeners get involved in something like that? Because it can seem overwhelming, you know, being part of, building a cathedral or, or um, a massive architectural endeavor. How do you nurture cathedral thoughts? Well, I think in a way we are all architects. And while we use an architect as an example because of, of creating the structure of a cathedral, and we think when people get to a certain age and they're thinking about having children and when they're having children, they're wondering, where are those kids maybe going to go to college or what type of jobs might they have? And gosh, what if, if they have children, all of a sudden I find myself as a, a grandparent. So people think about future generations that for themselves, for their neighbors, for their community. And, and so I, I think we're all there in one way or another. It's a matter of pausing long enough to, to realize what was, isn't, and what is, won't be. So what can we do to help steer what is in a very positive direction so that it's, it improves? Now, whether that's our community, for some it might be their, their, uh, their, their, their church or synagogue or, or religious place of practice that they, they, they want to have along for, for, um, for future generations. Um, building a mosque is, isn't something that you do just for yourselves and your family. You do it because you want adherence to your religion to be able to practice in coming generations. So, so there's that, but it's also how people build their, 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 Community facilities, their 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 personal attitude towards um, the environment, which is when you're talking about about doing things that are good for the environment, you're talking about protecting an environment so that future generations can can live healthy and can can be a part of it. People who build businesses are always thinking about the business thriving and going for the longer term. They just don't always apply the term cathedral thinking to what they're thinking about for the long term. You know, I, I was involved with the Olympic Games when they happened in Vancouver and Victoria. I'd been involved in, in the bid to, sorry, Vancouver and Whistler. I'd been involved in, in the bid to bring them here. That was the third bid. The original bid to bring the Olympics to Vancouver and Whistler happened in the 1960s. And then there was a second bid that built upon the first bid Neither of those were successful. This is true for, for Salt Lake City. It, it's, it's true for Pyongyang and South Korea. It's true for, for Oslo and Wilhelmer. Many places around the world bid three times before they had the Olympics. In each case, 
those who bid first time were cathedral thinkers. They had the vision, even though the vision wasn't realized until 50 or 60 years later and enjoyed by people who weren't alive when the first people had the vision. So I think cathedral thinking is in our daily life. It's just, um, it's a fun term. It's an easy to understand term that, that, makes people think uh, a little outside their own bubble and say, gosh, I'd like to be doing something today so my legacy helps a future generation and maybe is good for a grandchild that's not even born yet. It's kind of a way of life you could embrace. It is. Well said. (laughs) Well, in true traveler fashion, we start with a plan, sort of an itinerary outline, and then go where our interest takes us. So... I also understand you just got back from Tahiti and other islands around the South Pacific. You chartered a sailing ship. So tell us about that trip. So I I, I want to go to something that you just phrased nice because I'm I'm with you. You know, it's it's there are those who count how many countries they've been to, but but um, I I can say there are over a hundred countries I've never been to. And, and that's a number that means something to me because, because I would like to see them, but I can also say that there are so many countries I would like to go back to. Um, and what, what we had in, in French Polynesia was, was lovely. It wasn't a, a, a charter. We, we, uh, we were on a, a, a larger ship, but it was a four masted sailing ship. And there were, there were many others and, and which is always nice because you get to meet people from, all over the world. There were uh, people from Europe, people from the United States, or people from uh, Australia. Australians are such great travelers. And it was it was a couple of weeks through the ar- archipelago. And, and so you start out in Tahiti and, and quite quickly realize that, you know, the whole French Polynesia area is, is vast. And, and it, it, it was, the, it was the opportunity to get onto an island and walk around to be on Bora Bora, which has one of those easily memorable names. And it comes quickly to people who have maybe never been there, but when you're actually there and you can have some quiet time in a, a, a part of it, knowing that, gosh, you're, you're, you're kind of feeling like you're alone. You don't feel you're the first person there, but that and, and, and knowing that there's um, an itinerary, which will get you, safely out and back and uh, you know a dozen days later you're you're ready to leave with one of those great pleasures of of true travels where you're satisfied but you'd want just a little bit more and and that's kind of a nice time to leave because you've 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 um, still got questions travelers questions but you've got lots to digest as you make your way home and when you get home and prodded by photographs that you see later. So it's an extraordinary part of the world, of course. And, and it, 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 without saying so, it begs you to come back because it, 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 um, it's, it's, this might be a bit of an unfair word to use because, because every destination would like to feel they've got this component, but, but the, the French Polynesia is enchanting. It is, it is, storybook it's 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 like things you've you read about as a kid and and, and you can go by islands with nobody on them and it's just you looking at them or or you look out on the horizon and there's 
there's nothing but tomorrow. There's there's no land. So it was um, it was it was special, and it it did what good travel always does. It 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 makes you think about how fortunate we are to have this planet and how much of it there is to take better care of. Did you say there's nothing but tomorrow? Yeah, when you I like that. <laughs> and that's, that's it. You know, you 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 look over the the starboard. And 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 there's there's nothing, and, and you go to port, and there's there's nothing. You can't see anything but the, the the curve of the distant horizon, which I understand is probably twelve nautical miles away, where the the curve begins to show. But but you're on a you're on a a, a, a boat, but there's no other point of reference out there other than 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 the waves and the then you know the magic of, of what's beneath the waves. And it, it's, 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 I mean, this I think is another wonderful thing about travels. And I'd, I'd love to hear examples because I'm sure you've, you've felt the same emotion. You're humbled. Like, like you, you can't help but feel as a traveler overwhelmed by nature. And this was French Polynesia, but, you must have felt this in the Caucasus, where you you just look and wonder and and feel kind of humbled by it all. And isn't that isn't that a great emotion to have as a traveler? Oh, certainly. I'd also say, um, you know, as you're describing that, just floating out there and see and and only have you know, just not really no sight of land at all, just feeling like you're completely, I don't know, timeless in a way. Um, but it, it brought me back to a book I read called um, In the Heart of the Sea, which is the true story of Moby Dick. Oh, okay. And yes. Okay. It's got, this is, it's a great read. And is it that? talks about, you know, the, the ship went down and these, um, these sailors were just lost at sea. And they mentioned the Marquesas and um, Papa Heat. I, I always, I, I have trouble saying that word. Is it Papa Heat? Puppy Bay? P-A-P-E-T-E, that island. There's so many islands over there, but right. you talk. Well, there's, there's, yeah, there are. There's, there's, I mean, they're just loaded with it, right? There's just, the whole area is loaded with, with, yeah. with islands of fascinating names. But, you know, these men were just adrift and it, it was just so hard to keep up hope because there was just no land in sight. And so it's so, I've always wanted to go to French Polynesia so that I could just really, you know, Feel, feel what it was like to be, be these sailors in a time when there wasn't airplanes or helicopters to, to fly over and find you. So they were just lost for, I think it was two months, maybe. Um, uh, and yeah, and they ended up on one of the islands in the Galapagos. And actually tying this all back to cathedral thinking, um, they ended up starting a fire there to keep warm and to cook food. And it took off and burned the whole island. And oh, the char is still there. Never grew back. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and, and Papayete is probably the, the, the name that you were, yes. you Sorry. were thinking of. Yes. You know, the, I mean, isn't that another um, sort of startling thing about, about travels is that you're, you're taken out of your normal vocabulary by virtue of, of place names, but, but also, and I, 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 I would say this about so many remote places that that I've I've um, encountered is 
is I feel ignorant that I not only didn't know the language, because that's not a possibility for to know every language, but that I I didn't know the music or I maybe had never seen the flag of a of a of a country that's proud of its flag. And I just hadn't noticed it before. And I think that that's it, it's good to be unsettled as a traveler where where the the, the say in, in our cases of the Anglo tongue doesn't easily pronounce local place names or or a, a, a fish that you've never heard of before but when it's served it's it, it is kind of familiar looking but it's it's maybe cooked in it with herbs that, that, that we've never encountered despite all the trade in the world and you you again I'll use the word the privilege that you you get to taste something like this at a time or or in a place that's that's so out of your element that you can feel unease in all of the good pleasure. You can you can feel uncomfortable at the same time you realize what a rich, extraordinary experience somebody else is gifting for you. Yeah, it's very, very humbling. Um, and actually, I have a cool nugget about Georgia that I wanted to throw in. Because um, one of the things that can be, I, I, I don't know, it's discouraging. I don't know if that's the right word for it. But, you know, when you travel, there's very few things that you can't get by ordering it on Amazon or, mm-hmm. you know, finding it somewhere. And, um, and I love those experiences where you can only get, and of course, you know, what you see is something that can't be recreated in a postcard. So, so right. you have that. But um, when I was in Georgia, they, they have a unique way of making their wine. Oh. Yeah. It's in an urn that they bury and it's not Oak. It's, it's like a clay and they bury it and then they seal it. And once the, the seal is popped, it ha- it has an expiration date like milk. So, uh. Yeah. So it can't really be exported very far. You might be able to get a gra- glass in Russia or Turkey, but, um, but it can't get to the United States. So you have to go to Georgia to have Georgian wine. And I just, I loved that. It was very, very millennial. Love experiences. You know, <laughs> yeah, you, you've, um, I, I didn't know that. You've, you've, you've uh, I think, articulated an example of, of what is increasingly rare. And that is a traveler feeling like they they get something the folks back home can't replicate. If they're not with you, or in, in your case, because you're, you, you have an audience and you're a, a storyteller, you can share it, but you're sharing something with that, that incident that is, it's not something somebody can say, oh, I'm gonna go down to the bottle shop and uh, pick up a bottle of that so I know what you're talking about. They can't. And that's extraordinary. And that's, that's um, one of the times that travels the most rewarding, I guess. Eh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and while we've been talking, I've, I've been looking up all of these great Google images of French Polynesia. Uh, the bucket stunning. list of fans. <laughs> uh, Did you uh, snorkel? Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, we were out where the the rays were coming up close, and there were sharks. It was quite funny because one of the other fellows, um, uh, one of the guides, said, um, oh, "Don't worry about the sharks." He said they're they're uh, vegetarian sharks. To which uh, one of our fellow travelers said, "That probably means they just attack vegetarians." 
which I thought was a good way <laughs> to put it. But but they were there, fins and all, and they were perhaps, you know, eight, ten feet long sharks and and circled about, but we were assured that they uh, they didn't create a danger for us. But but there you are on a um, sort of a not a sandbar, but because you're you're in the water, but it's it's sort of waist deep. Um, so it's not it hasn't cracked the surface, but but you're you're there, and again you've had to go out by a, a, a tender to get to get to this, and it's it's that sense of of nature up close, and and it's it's like like feeling you've fallen into the pages of a National Geographic magazine or something like that, where it's 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 you and and the wilderness and and uh, an opportunity that to, to have to to encounter it face to face and that becomes i think increasingly increasingly precious to anyone who who values travel let alone a, a traveler like yourself who who gets to out of the way places you stood and looked at mount ararat and and that's awe-inspiring right right yes and you can look at a million pictures of it online and it doesn't it's not the same as looking at it with your eyes in real no, life it intimidates when you when you look at something like that or if you see a bear in in in, in the wilderness or a um, a wolverine or a, a coyote it, it just it 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 all of a sudden there is an adversary that that you don't want to do anything untoward toward them and you hope they don't do to you but it's whether you're in the water and you see you see uh, sea life around you, or you're you're on land, or you're looking at something uh, that is overwhelming, like a tall mountain. You 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 um, you feel less, but you feel more at the same time. Right, right. Well, I have one last question about French Polynesia. Um, are the islands themselves, and I'm looking at there's obviously several. Do you think it's worth going to more than one, or did they become very similar to each other? Well, I think they would make the plea that they are each distinctive. I mean, they are, are now they have the big lasso around them, that the, the geographic lasso that calls them French Polynesia, but 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 their 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 people, their 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 customs, even though they, they share in them, you know, it's not that many years ago that, that any trading was was done by by um, paddleboat but you know between them and and some of them grow some plants and some of them grow other plants and and their languages were related but but still distinctive their their cooking styles distinctive one place to the other so i i i think it is fair to say that that um that that each island is worth its own visit but how much time do you have if you're sailing you can visit a number of them and have have uh, sort of quasi-independent experiences, but I think to um, to be on a small sailboat and be able to to visit some of them or to make plans to visit some of them uh, all on their own would be um, uh, that that would be its own little uh, travel treasure for sure. All right. Well, as always, thanks so much for sharing all these travel nuggets with us, and we will of course have you back. Thank you very much. I admire what you're doing and uh, the audience you're creating. It's uh, and your travels. It's terrific. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Travel Nuggets. I'll post more information about this episode, including helpful links on the Travel Nuggets website. Please visit travelnuggetspodcast.com. 
There, you can check out additional episodes or download them wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. You can email me at travelnuggetspodcast at gmail.com.